continuing a series called Sharing is Caring. How many have loved it? I have loved this series. I love that Haley, Haley last week condensed the entire theology of God into 30 minutes. It was magical. If you haven't listened to that, it will be time well spent. It was so good. And we've been talking about, as Pastor Pat says, learning how to gospel the gospel, to share the story of, our, of how our lives were changed forever by the redemptive work of Jesus and how, as Haley said, we were swept up into God's story. And so today, so you can go back and listen actually on YouTube or you can go to themovement.org and you can hear those messages. And again, it will be time well spent. According to the Billy Graham Association, on average, every person has at least seven people in their lives that needs to hear the gospel. So you just thought of someone. Hold that thought. Don't dismiss it. Don't disregard it. Don't make an excuse for it. Don't try to run away from it. Just hold that thought because it's going to be important. So they say that every person has seven people who really need to hear the gospel. Some are obvious, right? They have needs. They're reaching out. They're crying out. That's very obvious. But some are not so obvious. They appear to have it all together. Their life looks like they're winning to everyone around. But there's some things going on inside, and they're not. And maybe they're not ready for a conversation. But today, as we're talking about gospeling the gospel, I want to tell you, I want to talk about one way that we can right now begin gospeling the gospel. And that is through the power of making an invitation to someone to come in and have an encounter, a conversation, or you're inviting to them to a place where they can experience Jesus for themselves. So you're going to invite them to an encounter, and a conversation or to a place where they can experience Jesus for themselves. Today, we're going to actually talk about the power of invitation through the gospel of 7-Eleven. Now, how many of you thought of Slurpee or coffee? Or like you went there, right? We all went there. Okay, you're not far off. You're not far off. There's a method to my madness. But when we were talking about this in staff, you know, people were like, oh, you know, I want a Slurpee. How many of you have ever had a Slurpee? Don't lie. You've had a Slurpee. Okay, there's the, there's the, the argument between cherry and soda, like Coke or whatever that is. Some of you, when you think 7-Eleven, you think those little crumb donuts that are there. Or you think, yeah, or those things that roll they just roll all day long. They look like a hot dog, but I think they're a pizza or they're something. Like I, I was a youth pastor for 20 years. Our kids love those things. I'm like, what is that? Is that like a, is that food? Human food? But just rolls all day. Sorry, 7-Eleven. I mean, they're supposed to be really good. So anyways, your, your brain went to 7-Eleven and all the wonderfulness and amazingness of it. So hold that thought because we are going to talk about the gospel according to 7-Eleven. But first, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Mark 10, 46 to 49. It says that then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that Jesus of Nazareth, that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, and they told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped, and he said, Call him. 
So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. So here's the deal. Jesus, the son of God, the commander of heaven's armies, stopped. The Lord of all stopped. He stopped for a blind man, for a beggar that was sitting behind the road that society had said he had no worth. He was walking with all his people, his disciples, and a very large crowd, and people were celebrating, yay, the message of Jesus is getting out. This is so awesome. But he stops that moment. He interrupts that moment for a blind man, a beggar. And I love this because we see in the scriptures all the time that Jesus approaches people for conversation. But he doesn't do this here. And this is what caught my eye. He turns to his disciples and he says, call him. See, he issued an invitation to his disciples to go and bring the man. He said, go and invite him. He's allowing them to partner with him in what he's about to do. See, The disciples went up to the man and they said, Jesus is calling you, cheer up, because they know what's about to happen. They know what's about to happen. See, invitations say, you are welcomed, you are wanted, you are included. But an invitation to have an encounter with Jesus says, cheer up, things are about to change. And see, they were raving fans of Jesus' ministry, and they had walked all around with it. They knew what was about to happen in the life of this man. So when when he says, call him, they knew what that invitation meant, that there was going to be a life-transforming moment. They knew that his life was about to change. See, Jesus was the greatest inviter of all time. He invited everybody. See, there's no plus one at a Jesus party. Right, you know how there's a plus one, like your friend gets an invitation and then you're the plus one. You don't actually belong there and you know it, but you got to go because somebody knew someone that was important and they got to go. So you walk and you're like, I'm just, I'm like the only, I'm just the plus one, but I'm just gonna go get some more shrimp over here. I'm just, I'm the plus one. Champagne, that's so cool. And so no, every single person has an invitation. So look at the person next to you and say, I am not a plus one. No, seriously, you are not a plus one. You got your own invitation. You know that person that was in your brain when I said everybody has seven people? That person is not a plus one at the party. That person has their own invitation. In fact, you will not meet anyone anywhere who does not have their own invitation to Jesus' party. They all have one. See, I know, that's not great. Isn't that awesome? Because we got to start thinking through that as we look at people. So Mark 16, 15, Jesus says, preach the gospel to all creation. So if there is a human and they're living in creation, that, that Jesus is saying, go make an invitation to them. Go share the gospel with them. Revelation 3, 20, Jesus is saying, I stand at the door and I knock, knock, knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Right? John 7, 37, he's at a festival and he comes out and he goes, let anyone who is thirsty, anyone, anyone. So if you're a someone, then you're an anyone who is thirsty, come and drink. So Jesus not only, ha- not only holds out this invitation, but he invites us to actually partner with him in that process because he turns and he says, call him. Two very powerful words. See, just like in the story of 
Bartimaeus, Jesus the inviter, saw people that other people don't see. See, he saw the beggar by the side of the road. See, he accepted and he invited and he included people in society that were deemed unworthy. They'll never be rehabilitated. Like we actually, we actually put that down as a judgment. There, there's no rehabilitation for this person. They are beyond hope. You have people in your life and you look at them and you go, never going to happen. Never going to happen. But Jesus looks at them and he sees the completeness in him. See, he doesn't look at someone who's blind. He saw, he saw Bartimaeus and he saw someone who can see. He saw someone with vision. And he's calling people out. He's inviting people to live and to walk as the people that he sees who are complete in him. We're not supposed to judge by the word stand. We, we consider nobody through worldly standards. But we look through the eyes of Jesus and we ask Jesus, can you show me this person complete in you? Because that's what Jesus sees. Now, Bartimaeus, he was just waiting for the invitation. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me. I need you, I need you, I need you. So they go make the invitation and they're like, your life is about to change. We're, we're, that invitation literally redirected his destination. There was one way and then there's an invitation and there's another way. It literally changed his life and he was agreeable. But sometimes we know people are not so willing to listen or to respond kindly to our invitation. You know that, huh? There's someone in your life. They're just not willing, right? So this is when it's so important that we need to know what I like to call the gospel of 7-Eleven. Now, you know I'm going to take an opportunity to talk to you about my grandbabies. Like, there's always a story. I'm going to write a book one day called The Gospel According to My Grandbabies because I'm always learning something. So the other day, so my daughter and her husband, they bought a house. And they have my three-year-old Betsy, my oldest granddaughter, and two-year-old Jack. They were moving into a house, and, and there was a lot of, you know, moving into a house is, is, is a lot of chaos. And Betsy was watching everybody take all the stuff out of her room. We're taking her stuff. We're boxing it up. We're moving it. This is the only house she's ever known. She's three her whole life. And so we had to do a law. We had to do a rule. I said, okay, Nana, do you trust me? Yes, and Nana's going to say, no bear left behind. And she's crying. She's like, they're taking my stuff. They're taking down my bed. They're taking all my love. He's like, no bear left behind. And I was on a mission to make sure no bear was going to get left behind. So I'm moving stuff between their houses. And every time I go to the new house, I pass by about two and a half blocks or so from their house, two blocks, a 7-Eleven. Now, being the nana that I am, I'm like, I cannot wait till I'm babysitting and I can walk my grandchildren down the street for, and buy them a Slurpee, right? She doesn't even know what a Slurpee is. She has no idea the amazingness that is behind the golden doors of 7-Eleven. We all know, right? She has no idea. So they get in their house and, and it's hot and the air conditioning's not working and there's contractors in and they're trying to fix things and Papa's in there with all the washing machine and everything. The garage is a mess and there's boxes and everything and it's so disruptive. And this is not her house. This is the new house. And so I'm there on a Saturday, and she doesn't get a nap, and it's hot, and she's tired. And I decide, because in my brain, I kept thinking of this glorious moment that my granddaughter and I were going to walk to 7-Eleven. It's going to be so great. And I decide that this is the appropriate moment to go to 7-Eleven. I know. Just, yeah, I know. I know what you're thinking. So I say to my daughter, can we take the kids to 7-Eleven? 
Yeah, that would be great. Because at that point, she's like, I don't care what you do with them. I don't care if you take them 10 miles out because they're tired, we're hot, we're moving. So we, we go outside, bats. Not is going to take you to 7-Eleven. What's that? You don't even know. I'm going to get you a treat. Okay, we go outside. And she realizes that the only stroller available is the one that only fits her brother, Jack. She's going to have to walk two blocks. She is tired. She is hot. She is out of routine. She has no nap, and she is three. And so I'm, here we go. I'm going to go to 7-Eleven. So excited. And so we go, so we go outside, and she realizes this. I don't, I don't want to walk. Oh, honey, Nana's going to get you anything you want. I don't want to walk. I don't want to walk. And she starts acting three. And she starts showing a little bit of fit. Very unlike Bets. Bets does not do it. So it's very out of character for her. But she's throwing a fit. I don't want to go. And Megan, my daughter, who is an amazing mother, she leans down and she says, Bets, um, I understand that you're sad. And that is so okay. You can be sad. You can be sad because I know you're tired. But we're going to walk the two blocks to 7-Eleven because she wants to go. She just wants to go her way and she actually can't. So if she's going to get there, she's got to get there this way. And my daughter is so sweet because she doesn't want to tell her she can't be sad. She can be sad. It's a sad, it's, she's tired. She didn't get a nap. She's three. We moved her bears. Like this is, this is a sad moment. So I lean down and I say, Bet, Nana will hold your hand. Come on, I'll hold your hand. And so Betsy's not ever, She's not going to not take Nana's hand. So she takes my hand. Come on, I'll walk with you. So we start the journey two blocks. Now, this is a kid who can walk two miles, no problem. And she just, it's so far, Nana. And along the way, we stop and we're smelling the roses and we're looking at the birds and we're, you know, it's taking so long. But she remembers she's grumpy when we stop doing things. And so we're still doing along the way. I'm trying to make the journey a little bit nicer for you. Oh, look at this rose. That's so pretty. Oh, look at that. And I just want to get to 7-Eleven because I'm hot. And I want, I don't want to run a Slurpee, but there's things in that store I really want. And so we finally get to the store. And I'm so excited. We open the golden doors and, oh, and she looks in the store. and Because remember, she's a COVID baby. No one was going into stores. Like, she, so, so there's, a, there's a perspective here you guys need to have. And she goes, oh, and she goes in. I go, Nana will buy you anything you want in this store. And I meant it. And so she goes in and she chooses something for herself. And she chooses something for Jack because he's a little brother and you never get to make your own decisions. And so she chooses a dessert. I know, the, all the youngest children. Yes. And so, and she chooses something for dessert and she gets something for her mom and she gets something for her dad and she gets something for her papa and she gets something for me. And we go to the cash register and I spent $36. Like it is $36 at 7-Eleven. And I'm like, how much is it? And so I did the only thing I knew to do. I used papa's card. We both have our cards that, you know, are spending money. I use Papa's card. Papa's so going to pay for this. You can tell him, thank you. He's so sweet. We're so going to use Papa's card for this. So we leave the store, and she's skipping, and she's got her thing, and she picked out, and she's so happy. We even got something for nobody called, like, Starlight Soda or something. Anyways, it was nobody. I'm like, why did we buy this? Who is this for? I don't know. We were just buying stuff. And guess what Betsy is? She is a raving fan of 7-Eleven. Because she has experienced 
because I invited her into an experience of 7-Eleven. I could have told her forever what was in there, but she got to experience 7-Eleven. So when she gets home, she's giving out all her stuff, and she's so excited. And guess what? The next time I say, hey, bud, she want to go to 7-Eleven? She's going to be like there because I know what is behind those golden doors of amazingness. So what is the point of this story? Always bring Papa's card. <laughs> point number one. Always bring Papa's card. <laughs> now, the point of the story, I mean, that is a point. Like, you got to know me. I'm not, I'm not joking. Um, the point of the story is that sometimes people push back. They might be rude. They might reject you. They might pull out their three-year-old self and act like it as an adult. Sometimes people reject you. It's important to remember that we actually don't know what's going on behind the scenes of their life. You see, if someone would have seen me walking Betsy, you know, before 7-Eleven, they might have said, wow, you got to get that kid in order. That is a bad behavior. I would not be taking that kid to 7-Eleven because she's acting, she's not acting nice, right? How many of you said that? Lady, get your kid out of the store. Like just saying. And, but we, but they don't know that just everything about her life has shifted. She was hot. She didn't have a nap. Somebody pulled the rug out from under the only house she'd ever known. Nobody knows that. They just see what they see, and they make this judgment that she shouldn't behave that way. So you never know what's going on under the surface and behind sometimes the bad behavior of other people's lives. So there was a time in my life before Jesus where I, I was that kid. I mean, I know some of you, some of you may have heard this, but I, I say that my bio, I say it all the time. By the age of 22, I was a single mom, divorced, two-time college dropout, living with a man who was not my baby daddy. He was a South American drug dealer, highly addicted to cocaine and horribly violent. And I couldn't get through the day without alcohol. And my family was brokenhearted over that. And nobody knew how to help me. Because people tried. But a life like that is very isolated. I, I'm isolated. I can't tell people. Back in the day, because I am kind of an old person, we didn't even have pagers. If you wanted to find help, you had to find it in a phone book or maybe something stapled to a telephone pole. And if you needed to make a call, you better have a quarter or a phone connected to a wall. So I didn't, there was, there was no way that I could get from here to there. I was broken. I was ashamed. I was guilty. I was confused. I was lonely. And I didn't know how to help myself. And nobody around me knew how to help me. And I had my parents' only grandchild in tow. And their hearts were breaking because they, nobody could reach me. But I had a job. And every day, while I would be at work, and there was a pastor. And I'm going to name him because he's really important, Pastor Zach. And he would walk by the door to where I was working every day. And he would say, hi, Julie. I don't know how he knew my name, but he knew everybody's name. And he was kind of popular at that place. And hi, Pastor Zach. When are you coming to church? 
make an imitation. Did hell freeze over? I hadn't heard. I said, hi, Julie, when are you coming to church? <laughs> the walls of your church will fall down if I, you have zero idea who I am. And he's like, my walls are pretty strong. I think they can hold it. And so every day he'd walk by, he'd say hi, he'd make an invitation, and I'd reject him nicely with a smile. <laughs> Go away. I'm not coming. I don't want what you have to offer. Every day, every day, every day. And I'm not talking about weeks, months, years. Every day he would come by and he would make an invitation. Hi, Julie, when are you coming? And he didn't want what he had to offer until I did, until one day I had nowhere else to turn. And the only bridge that existed in my life was Pastor Zach. Hi, Julie, when are you coming to church? So he didn't get overly invested in how many kilos of cocaine we were selling that week. <laughs> he didn't get overly invested in the reputation that I had clearly for everyone that worked at the place where I worked. He just did what the Lord told him to do. He just made an invitation. And so one day I decided, okay, I, I'm probably going to die. I need help. So I thought I was, I, I'm going to walk in that church. See, he built a bridge for me to his church with his invitation. And so one day, I, I couldn't go to Sunday because that would be too churchy. I felt like he was going to win if I went to Sunday. So I went to a Wednesday night Bible study because that's not more intimate, right? Like, I don't know anything about church. So I'm like, a Bible study during the week sounds a lot easier than actually going to church. And so I walk in. It's a church of 3,000 people. And I walk in early because I'm always early. And he is the only one in the building. That never happens. And I walk up the stairs and I walk straight into Pastor Zach. And he just, he had the, I could see it in my brain. He had the fun, biggest smile. And he goes, Julie, <laughs> what are you doing here? He's even surprised. And I say, I'm just playing a joke on you. I'm just leaving. I was just playing a joke. I just want to know what you would think if I walked in your church. And he goes, oh, no, no, come here, come here, come here. We talked a little. He goes, come, why don't you come in? So I come in, and I sit in the back of the Bible study, and I cry my eyes out. And that, that day would change the direction of my life. You're going to want to come next week because Pastor Pat's going to talk about what we do when that moment happens in our life. But for right now, I just want to say, it's not a knock on any other person who was in my life who couldn't figure out how to help me. But Pastor Zach was being obedient when the Lord stopped and told him, call her, call her. Everyone probably thought he was crazy. She is the last person that would ever walk into a church. Don't you know her? He was just being obedient to the one. He had no idea what was going to happen. See, the gospel of 7-Eleven hinges on two things. You've got to be a bridge builder, and you've got to be a raving fan. See, Pastor Zach built a bridge. He built a bridge of love that I could just, it was love 
Because remember, invitation says you are wanted. You are included. He built this bridge that said, I'm wanted. I'm invited. I'm included. I'm loved. And I was able to walk. And then he grabbed me by the hand. But if we're going to give the invitation for Jesus, then we actually have to do it his way. Right? Betsy wanted to get to 7-Eleven her way. But she, ha- she couldn't. She didn't have that option. But I was willing to hold her hand. Right? Jesus is the way, but he is willing to build a bridge so that we can get there. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though, we are make- as though he is making his appeal through us. As though he is making his appeal through us. Now, if Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to go make an appeal for me, I'm going to make it through you, then people should see him. And I fear that sometimes in the church and in Christianity, we don't look a lot like Jesus when we're making the invitation. We don't. Because the way of Jesus is love. He doesn't exclude anybody because of bad behavior. See, 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God wants all people to be saved to come to the knowledge of truth. That's all people. So if you're a people, that's you. God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were at the worst, God showed his greatest act of love for us. See, that's how Jesus responds to bad behavior. He died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.16 says that from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view because he's asking us to be ministers of reconciliation. We can't see people from a worldly point of view. This is what the world says about them, their value, their ability to be rehabilitated. This is what the world says because remember, Jesus saw them through the completeness of his work, right? So John 3... So John 3.17 says that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved. It is his kindness that leads God to repentance. God did not, does not send out an invitation that is laced with judgment. Okay, this is wrong, 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 this is wrong. Get that all together and then come meet Jesus. See, come on, I mean... The Lord said today we're getting called to a higher ground on this. Because if we are going to be ambassadors, if we are going to be ministers of reconciliation, then we actually have to do it his way, right? If we're going to carry his message, we're going to carry it his way. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus put the love back in tough love. See, Jesus put the love back in tough love, and that's what he's asking us to do. See, as a church, I think we've gotten really good at building walls around ourselves under the guise of this is healthy. We preach the gospel of protection. Unless you get your act together, I'm just being really healthy right now. So I've got to cut everybody out of my life that is not healthy and that is not contributing or that is making me feel a certain way or that doesn't agree with me or that said something I don't like or that did something I don't like. I got to, I got to protect you. I got to protect our doctrine. I got to protect. We're, we're so into the gospel of protection. I think we have become ministers of behavior modification instead of ministers of reconciliation. Right? We're so busy fixing the behavior 
of people, then we're forgetting that we're supposed to be reconciling them. Then because I got to tell you, until someone gets to the cross, doesn't matter. Once they get to the cross, now we're talking. Okay, so don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we have to allow dangerous people to run roughshod all over our lives and we're not supposed to participate in bad or, or broken behavior. So we're not supposed to put our hand to the plow and be yoked with bad or broken behavior. But this isn't a binary situation. Either I live in your world or I don't live in any part of your world. This, we got to be a bridge builder. We got to build a bridge of love. And we got to stand squarely on it, right? That, build, that bridge of love says, I can't actually come over here and help you with that bad or broken behavior, but I love you and I'm here and this is what I can do. And I, I can hold out my hand. I can do this or I can do this, but I'm here and I'm not leaving this bridge. I don't care what you do. I am not leaving this bridge. I do have to say, with bets that day, I, I could have, modern parenting might have said, I leaned down, and because I don't want to support bad behavior, because we never want to support bad behavior, I could have leaned down and said, Bet. You can go in the house and sit down until you're ready to have a good attitude. When you have a good attitude, then maybe we'll go. I could have said, Bets, you can go straight on in the house and sit down because your attitude isn't very good and we'll be back and we're going to take Jack. How many of you have ever had that happen as a child? Get it together. Yeah, there's a lot. There was a lot in first service. But Jesus says... I want you to go there because I know it's going to be amazing. Hold my hand. Let me help you to get there. See, I couldn't put her in a stroller, but I could hold her hand. People might have said she was being bratty and judged, but they don't know what's going on. But when things get really tough and you're being really challenged, you have to do the second thing, which is you have to be a raving fan. You have to be a lover of the Slurpee. You have to know what's behind the golden doors. You have to believe that the invitation that you are holding in your hand for them is the best thing that could ever happen in their life. Because if you don't believe that, you're coming off the bridge. If you do not believe that what you are holding in your hand is the absolute turning point, best thing for them, if you don't know firsthand experience what is in 7-Eleven, you don't even care if you go there. See, if I had never had a Slurpee, I don't care if Betsy gets there or not. But I have experienced the goodness, and now she has two. So you have to be a raving fan. Psalm 34, 8 Taste and see that the Lord is good. The Passion Translation says, drink deeply of the pleasures of this God. Experience for yourself the joyous mercies he gives. Like you have to be a raving fan or you're not going to go the distance with someone who is a messy person. You have to taste and see and taste and see and taste and see and taste and see and taste and see. 
Because when you do, that invitation that you're holding in your hand becomes so much more important. See, there's a statistic, I think it was Pew Research, that said 80% of millennials said that they would invite their friends to share their faith if they knew that their friends were really passionate about it. Like, I'm cool to listen to my friends tell me about their faith if it meant a lot to them. It made me think how much we're not raving fans sometimes. Cheer up. You have zero idea what's going to happen to you. So I had to look up a 7-Eleven scripture just because. I want you to drive by a 7-Eleven all the time and remember this message. It says, Matthew 7-11, if you, imperfect as you are, know how to lovingly take care of your children and give them what's best, how much more ready is your heavenly father to give wonderful gifts to those who ask him? So now when you drive by a 7-11, how much more is your heavenly father wanting to give that person gifts? These faces are going to come before your eyes every time you pass a 7-11, every time you eat a Slurpee, and you're going to be like, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, God. It's your kindness that leads men to repent. God, I pray kindness over them. Stop praying for behavior modification and start releasing kindness over the messy people in your life. God, bless them with kindness. Bless them with kindness. Blow their minds today. Knock them out of the water. Be so, so, so good to them today, God. Stop being a minister of behavior modification. Let's start reconciling people. Let's start releasing the kindness of heaven over people, but they don't deserve it. They're so mean. You don't know. No. You know what? That was Jesus' deal. He dealt with it. He paid for it. It's done. He doesn't need to do anything else for them. It's already been done. See, their snarky attitude to you was paid for already. I could just preach that before time. Woo. Jesus paid for it all. It cost him everything. And you hold the invitation for that person. My heart is so passionate about this because I know what it's like to be that person sitting by a road that is not seen, that is not valued, that nobody has hope for. And I know what it's like to be seen. Whew. So, the Billy Graham Society says that right now you know seven people. Ask God to show you. Ask God to show you who they are. They might be like Bartimaeus. They might just be waiting for someone to invite them. They might just be waiting for you to open that door and say, hey, come on. Jesus might be saying, call him. Call her. But even if they aren't, make the invitation anyways because you just... Don't know. Tell them they are welcomed. Tell them they are wanted. Tell them they are included. Know that Jesus paid for it all. Tell them you hold out an invitation that is just for them. Tell them they're not the plus one at the party. You never know who you could be talking to. Pastor Zach never knew who he was talking to. This year, I was in a country that was less than 1% Christian where there is so much persecution. As a woman, you're not even allowed to go to school, and I preached to thousands of people and brought the gospel. And I saw people getting saved and baptized. He had no idea 
that hi, Julie, when you come into church. <laughs> he had no idea. And there was a fire lit. And I get reports every day from people who gave their life to Christ. Our country, Jesus is in our country. There's faith in our country. Like, there was some of those personality traits that allowed me to stand up on a stage when there's guns pointing at me and you're not allowed to speak as a woman and someone hand me the microphone and I have to preach. See, some of that comes in handy. He had no idea. We have no idea. See, the gospel spread across the world by the power of invitation. Jesus invited Philip. Philip invited Nathaniel. Andrew invited Peter. John invited his brother James. John the Baptist invited Andrew and John. And then all of a sudden, the gospel spread throughout the world because the power of an invitation. But if you're going to make it, you got to make it his way. See, there's a Nigerian proverb that says, in times of crisis, the wise build bridges, but the foolish build dams. The wise build bridges, but the foolish build dams. And I feel like the trajectory of the believing church, we've been building a lot of dams. We gotta stop that movement. 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 And we need to stop that. We need to start building bridges to people and standing on it. Oh, but isn't that codependent? Because your attitude should be like this Jesus, taking on the form of a servant, humbling himself even unto death. I'm not there yet. It's <laughs> a pretty high bar. Ooh. So what I want to tell you, we got to go live, people. We've got to start inviting people into an encounter. Can I pray for you? Into a conversation. Can I tell you my story? See, sometimes you see me, I'm all crazy down here in worship, and I'm crying, and I'm like, but you, you didn't know my story. See, you don't, you don't know what I was saved from. I wrote it in a book. It's called Messed Up, actually, which is kind of fun, because it was. Invite someone into a conversation where you can tell them your story. Invite them to a place. Invite them to church. This is so cool. I have a, um, I love that they did this. The girls on staff are so talented and amazing. They did this Easter card that says, you can sit with me. See, come to church. You can sit with me. I want to sit with you. See, I, I'll, I'll grab you by the hand and I'll come in and I'll, I'll sit with you so you're not alone. I love that they did this. You have seven people in your life right now that might respond to your invitation to sit with them. Make the invitation. Make the invitation. So I feel like today we're going to do something. This morning the Lord said, people's hearts are breaking for the messy people in their life. Like you have someone in your life that's rough. And it's unpopular to love them. 
it's unpopular to love them. You feel almost shame in helping them or loving them because there's a lot of criticism about that. You might be the messy person. I always say, if you don't have a messy person in your life, it's, it's probably you. Um, <laughs> but there's someone in your life that you're struggling. You think, I got to put these boundaries. I got to, you know, I can't drive my, my grandchildren to school because then it supports the bad behavior of my son. Drive your grandkids to school. You're not a victim to that. See, when you become a victim to those things, it wars against collaboration and we're supposed to help people decide upon their eternity. Like everyone has to make that decision and you might be honored enough to help someone. But if you are a victim to that behavior, it wars against your collaboration with them in that process. So people say, should I, like, should I, should I give my kid, let my kid sleep, you know, in the garage because he's homeless? Should I give my grandchildren food? Is that love to you? Yeah, then do it. I know, but isn't that? Do it. Be free. Be free to love them. Be free to build a bridge because nobody else might do that. But you're not a victim to it because then you don't have to say, oh, I give them all my money, blah, 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 taking out. No, 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 no. You're not a victim to that. But if love tells you to do something, then do it. See, sometimes I'll meet homeless kids on the street and I'll go, I will give you every single dollar in my purse, but I want five minutes with you. And people are like, well, they're just going to buy drugs. They're going to just go, I don't care. I don't care. They can do whatever they want with it. And I'll tell them, I'm sowing into your life. You can walk away from here and do whatever you want with it. But I'm going to give you, and sometimes I don't have a lot of cash, but sometimes I do. And I'm like, oh, I just said that. Okay, well, what a cash. But I want five minutes with you. And I invite them into a conversation. So I feel like today there's people whose hearts are breaking because you've been in torment over how to love the messy person in your life. It's killing you. You try to let them in, but then they mess up and then you cut them out of your life completely until you don't. And then you let them back in until they mess up and then you cut them out again and you're on this vicious cycle and you haven't learned to build those healthy boundaries of, I love you, I'm here, I'm not leaving. I can't do that but I can do that. You haven't, you haven't learned that. But I think the first step in that is to be free. Release yourself to love them. You are released. You are released. You are released. You are released. You are released to love them. I just lift guilt right now. Guilt and shame. I just lift that right now. Sometimes God puts messy people in our life because the thing that we carry is the thing that they need. And I don't know that. So the general policy of you can't love them doesn't actually work. You are released. If you have a messy person in your life, stand up. You are free to love them. I don't want to be a doormat. You might be just like Jesus. You are released to love them. You are released to love them. You are released to love them. God will give you wisdom. I trust him. When we choose love, he's not going to fool us. You are released to love them. Because Jesus has stopped 
And he has said, call them. Call him. Call her. You are free. You are free. And we're going to pray right now. And then, yeah, let's pray. God, I just thank you right now. We, right now, I just release, I just lift shame. We break shame and guilt, condemnation, God. Confusion, Lord, over whether to love or what love looks like. Love looks like Jesus. So, God, we just release love. We just release a new, new strength, a new resolve. God, I just declare that they are ministers of reconciliation. Every single person that is standing here, I declare that they are ministers of reconciliation, that you have put people in their lives, and God, you have stopped, and you are so, so ready. Cheer up. <laughs> the Savior is calling. And so right now, God, we just release kindness over every person represented in this room, the kindness of God that brings men to repentance, the kindness that breaks bondage. We release kindness. We release it over them. God, buckets of kindness, abundance, kindness, kindness that they could not even ask or imagine the kindness that is, we're just going to shake our heads and go, we can't even imagine how kind God was to them. So God, bless them with kindness. Bless them. Even if they might be doing a million things wrong right now, God, respond with kindness in their life. Yes, God. And we thank you that you are a God that operates in a way that just blows our Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. All right. All right. The next thing we want to do, you guys can have a seat for just a sec. If you are a messy person, I want to talk to you. There's people watching online. You might be that person that is just, no one knows what to do with you. I think there's someone named Richard. You got it. The Lord said there's someone named Richard. The Lord has said that he has stopped for him. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. There's someone in Kentucky. The Lord has stopped for him. Yeah. If you're a messy person, can you raise your hand? Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I just want to tell you that God hasn't changed his mind about you. God will never change his mind about you, ever. God will never change his mind. He will never see you any differently. There's nothing that can separate you from his love. So here's what I want to do. I wrote this book. You can find out more about me than you can ever know in your entire lifetime. But there is a chapter 10 that's called Messy People. And it goes into detail about how you can actually learn to set good um, bridges, build good bridges with the messy people in your life. If you have a messy person in your life, I'm going to invite you to come up and pray. Pray with our prayer team. And they're going to give you a copy of the book. Read chapter 10. I hope you read the whole book, but read chapter 10. And if you are a messy person, the same goes for you. We got enough of them. Just think it's going to bless you. So will you stand with me? Yeah. Lord, you are so 
good. <laughs> it always blows my mind. He is so good. Who, who does this? Who does this? God, who does this? Lord, I just thank you for every single person in this room. I pray especially for the hands of the ones that raised, that were raised, that just feel messy. God, I thank you that you're straightening those things out, God. I thank you that you are just reconciling and bringing all things into alignment, that you've never changed your mind about them. For the love that you're showing them right now, just minister to their spirits. I can just feel it, man. I thank you, Lord, for who you are. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name.